Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Song Mei Ling's speech. A nation under attack by a superior foe. A desperate people suffering through a long season of privation, a time that tries men's souls. And yet they remain resilient and determined. In their struggle for survival, they rely on that so-called arsenal of democracy, the leading power of the Western Alliance, the United States of America, for not only financial and political support, but also weapons and materiel. And at a critical juncture in the war, a leader of their nation travels to Washington to address a joint session of Congress and arrives to a hero's welcome. The speech is a triumph of public relations, garnering American support for the beleaguered nation and generating headlines all around the world. I am, of course, not talking about President Volodymyr Zelensky's recent visit to Washington and speech to Congress. I am, instead, talking about the February 1943 visit to Capitol Hill by Madame Chiang Kai-shek, the First Lady of the Republic of China, better known in Chinese by her own name, Song Meiling. But let's first back up and talk about who Song Meiling was and what twists of fate and vicissitudes of history placed her on the podium in the U.S. Congress on that pivotal day. Song Meiling was born in the International Concession Zone in Shanghai in 1898. She came from Cantonese stock. Her father, known in English as Charlie Song, had lived in America for years, converted to Christianity, and worked as a Methodist pastor. Later, after returning to China, Charlie Song managed to get rich by printing and selling copies of the Bible. Charlie and his wife, who came from a prominent Shanghai family, went on to have six children. Song Meiling was the fourth. Now, I could, and I ought to, do a whole episode just on the Song family, so influential they were in 20th century China. But for today, as we're focusing on Song Meiling's trip to Washington, let's just briefly touch on what her siblings went on to do. Her big sister, Song Ailing, known as Nancy in English, went on to marry Kong Xiangxi or H.H. Kong, future finance minister of the Republic of China. Her second sister, Song Qingling, was married to Sun Yat-sen, founding father of the Republic. And Qingling herself later helped to found 
the People's Republic of China in 1949. Her big brother, Song Ziwen, or T.V. Song, served variously as the Republic's finance minister, foreign minister, ambassador to Washington, and chairman of the central bank. As for Song Meiling herself, well, we already said she would become China's first lady. When Song Meiling was nine years old in 1907, she and her sister, Song Qingling, moved to the United States for schooling, attending a private school in Summit, New Jersey. A year later, both sisters moved to Georgia to join their other sister, Song Ailing, who was attending Wesleyan College there. Song Qingling also entered Wesleyan, and later Song Meiling would as well. But then Song Meiling transferred to Wellesley College in Massachusetts to be closer to her big brother, T.V. Song, who by now was a student at, of course, Harvard. In 1917, she graduated from Wellesley with a major in English literature and a minor in philosophy. She returned to China and in 1918 became an English teacher at the Shanghai YWCA. She apparently met her future husband, Chiang Kai-shek, for the first time in 1920 at the home of Sun Yat-sen, which was also, by this time, the home of her older sister, Song Qingling. And Chiang Kai-shek began pursuing her, despite being already married. Now, remember that at this time, Sun Yat-sen was the lodestar of the Republican movement, the man credited with bringing forth the Republic. Chiang Kai-shek was Sun's younger associate, the military man who was supposed to aid Sun Yat-sen. Sun Yat-sen himself was trained as a medical doctor, and throughout his revolutionary career, he always felt his own shortcomings in affairs of war. There was a sense that, perhaps, now that Sun Yat-sen was married to the older Song sister, Chiang Kai-shek, the junior man who looked up to him, desperately wanted to marry the younger one. Perhaps in emulation of the great man, or perhaps to become his brother-in-law. The Song sisters were like the Schuyler sisters from the musical Hamilton, if you know what I mean. Only, actually, the Song sisters were even more legendary. But, being already married with children, being raised a Buddhist, and being over a decade older than her, Chiang Kai-shek was not particularly welcomed as a suitor by Song Meiling's devoutly Christian mother. To win her family's approval, Chiang Kai-shek promised to divorce his existing wife, obviously, not to mention his two other concubines not formally married to him. He promised also to study the Bible and to convert 
to Christianity. Even then, Chiang Kai-shek and Song Meiling did not marry until seven years later, in 1927, after Sun Yat-sen had died and Chiang Kai-shek had risen to the top position within the Kuomintang and become the Generalissimo that we remember him as. Or, to put it another way, Chiang Kai-shek had to become the most powerful man in China in order to get his wife to marry him. Their marriage, in the end, resulted in no children. Chiang Kai-shek's only biological child, his son, Jiang Jingguo, was born to his first wife. But anyway, again, we didn't set out to do a full biography of Song Weiling. So let's skip over some details in the late 1920s and 1930s. Except to note, of course, that in our earlier episode on the Xi'an incident of 1936, in which the warlord Zhang Xueliang kidnapped Chiang Kai-shek, we noted the key role Song Weiling played in negotiating her husband's release. And also, before the outbreak of war in 1937, Song Meiling was instrumental in helping to found the Air Force of the Republic of China. And after war began, Song Meiling led the Women's Corps, which was responsible for tasks including collecting war orphans to take care of them and to educate them. In a personal connection, perhaps I'll just mention here that my grandmother was a member of the Women's Corps. And on one occasion, my grandmother, with a group of her colleagues, ate lunch with Song Meiling. Grandma was so proud of this fact, and so impressed by the occasion, that she would recall it glowingly, even when she'd reached her 80s, and was forgetting many other things. Even before the U.S. entered the war, but certainly afterward, in the wake of Pearl Harbor, Song Meiling became, arguably, the Republic of China's greatest diplomatic asset. Her upbringing in America, her fluent, actually slightly southern-accented English, born of her education in Georgia, before Wellesley College, were only two of the factors that made her attractive to the American public. It also helped that she was literally attractive as a person, as a woman. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, Somei Ling visited the U.S. numerous times, representing her country. It was in February 1943 that she made her historic speech on Capitol Hill. It's interesting to compare what she said then to what Zelensky said just a few weeks ago. The rhetorical strategies employed by both are strikingly similar. In the first prong of the strategy, as Zelensky said about Ukraine today, Song Meiling emphasized that her country had borne the brunt of war that in truth was the common struggle of all three nations. China, 
Somaling said, has bled and borne unflinchingly the burden of war for more than five and a half years. Though she then immediately promised, I shall not dwell, however, upon the part China has played in our united effort to free mankind from brutality and violence. Later in her speech, though, she returned to what she promised not to dwell upon. Let us not forget that during the first four and a half years of total regression, China has borne Japan's sadistic fury unaided and alone. And like Zelensky talking about how experts predicted the imminent fall of Kiev at the beginning of the war, she underscored how no one believed China could stand up to Japan for so long. When Japan thrust total war on China in 1937, military experts of every nation did not give China even a ghost of a chance. But when Japan failed to bring China cringing to her knees as she vaunted, the world took solace in this phenomenon by declaring that they had overestimated Japan's military might. She painted her countrymen as valiant warriors. From five and a half years of experience, we in China are convinced that it is the better part of wisdom not to accept failure ignominiously, but to risk it gloriously. In the second prawn of their common rhetorical strategy, So Meiling thanked and flattered the American people and their political leadership, again in a way similar to what Zelensky did just the other day. I want to assure you that the American people have every right to be proud of their fighting men in so many parts of the world, she said. She flattered America's sense of itself as the proverbial melting pot. America is not only the cauldron of democracy, but the incubator of democratic principles. At some of the places I visited, I met the crews of your air bases. There I found first-generation Germans, Italians, Frenchmen, Poles, Czechoslovakians, and other nationals. Some of them had accents so thick that, if such a thing were possible, one could not cut them with a butter knife. But there they were, all Americans, all devoted to the same ideals, all working for the same cause, and united by the same high purpose. No suspicion or rivalry existed between them. This increased my belief and faith that devotion to common principles eliminates differences in race, and that identity of ideals is the strongest possible solvent of racial dissimilarities. She alluded to America's notion of its own manifest destiny, that it was intended by God to play a great role on the world stage. I have reached your country, therefore, with no misgivings, but with my belief that the American people are building and carrying out a true pattern of the nation conceived by your forebears, strengthened and confirmed. You, as representatives of the American people, have before you the glorious opportunity 
of carrying on the pioneer work of your ancestors beyond the frontiers of physical and geographical limitations. Their brawn and thews braved undauntedly almost unbelievable hardships to open up a new continent. The modern world lauds them for their vigor and intensity of purpose and for their accomplishment. You have today before you the immeasurably greater opportunity to implement these same ideals and to help bring about the liberation of man's spirit in every part of the world. And of course, in the end, she tied China and America to each other as brothers in arms, sharing a common destiny. The 160 years of traditional friendship between our two great peoples, China and America, which has never been marred by misunderstandings, is unsurpassed in the annals of the world. I can also assure you that China is eager and ready to cooperate with you and other peoples to lay a true and lasting foundation for a sane and progressive world society which would make it impossible for any arrogant or predatory neighbor to plunge future generations into another orgy of blood. Her speech was a sensation. This and many other appearances by Song Meiling helped to garner American support for China's war efforts to a degree that is difficult to measure, but that was no doubt immense. Consider Chiang Kai-shek, the Generalissimo, her husband, couldn't speak a word of English and could not begin to perform on the international stage as she did. The Roosevelt and later Truman administrations surely would have provided less money and material to the Republic of China in support of its war efforts, but for Song Meiling. After Song Meiling finally died many decades later, in 2003, the New York Times said this in her obituary. As a fluent English speaker, as a Christian, as a model of what many Americans hoped China to become, Madame Chen struck a chord with American audiences as she traveled across the country, starting in the 1930s, raising money and lobbying for support of her husband's government. She seemed to many Americans to be the very symbol of the modern, educated, pro-American China they yearned to see emerge. Her speaking tours also had an effect in American domestic politics. Influenced by her, as well as by the fact of its alliance with China in the Second World War, the U.S. finally repealed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which since 1882 had, on racial grounds, banned Chinese from immigrating to America. Now, in fairness, there are also many unflattering things you can say about Song Weiling. Her family, the immensely powerful Song family, was also deeply corrupt. The later failure of the Republic in its civil war against the communists can, 
to a substantial degree, be attributed to that corruption. But, like I said, this is not meant to be a full biography of Song Meiling, and it's not a full moral appraisal of her character, or her record, or her family's record. For now, let's simply consider the diplomatic performance of hers on February 18th, 1943, and how it helped to shape global history in the 20th century. Then let's consider the recent historic diplomatic performance of our own time, and how it, too, will help to shape global history in the 21st century. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.